Welcome to Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. I'm Trevor Perry Giles, the Executive Director of the National Communication Association. The National Communication Association is the preeminent scholarly association devoted to the study and teaching of communication. Founded in 1914, NCA is a thriving group of thousands from across the nation and around the world who are committed to a collective mission to advance communication as an academic discipline. In keeping with NCA's mission to advance the discipline of communication, NCA has developed this podcast series to expand the reach of our member scholars' work and perspectives. This is Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. Today's special episode of Communication Matters, the NCA podcast, is presented in honor of Labor Day. Two graduate employee labor activists, Jose G. Izaguere III and Alicia Massey, join me to discuss their experiences as labor organizers and the effect that the COVID-19 pandemic may have on graduate employee organizing. But first, a bit more about our guests. Jose Joe Izaguere is a recent PhD graduate of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and an incoming faculty member at the University of Texas at Austin. Congratulations on that. Dr. Izaguere serves as a grievance officer for the Graduate Employees Organization at UIUC from 2018 to 2019 and participated in the union's 2018 strike. Dr. Izaguete researches in the area of rhetoric and public culture and Latinx studies, with a dissertation that focused on how the Vietnam War influenced the rhetorical formations of Latinx identity. Alicia Ali Massey is a coalition of student employee unions, formerly the Coalition of Graduate Employee Unions, coordinating committee member. Massey is a Joseph Armand Bombardier doctoral scholar, a PhD candidate, and a lecturer in the School of Communication at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada. We've gone international, folks. Massey's research focuses on issues related to precarious work, gender, race, from a socialist feminist perspective. Hi, Joe. Hi, Ali. Thank you very much for joining me today, and welcome to Communication Matters. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I would love to hear a little bit about each of your experiences in the labor movement, such as the positions that you've held or currently hold. Joe, could you tell our listeners a little bit about what a grievance officer does for their union? Sure. I consider the role to be a kind of formal advocate. The grievance officer has the responsibility of being able to recognize breaches of a negotiated contract between the union and the university. So I considered my job to be primarily one where I wanted to be able to make sure that the university was fulfilling their side of the bargain and help our own union members come to an awareness of what their rights were and what they should be able to anticipate and expect from the university for their own working conditions. Was this campus-wide, or were you a grievance officer for just a particular college or department? I represented everyone that was part of the union. So not all graduate students were part of the union, but those that were, it was my job to represent them before the university. 
Wow. Allie, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what CSEU does and what your role is as a member of the coordinating committee? That sounds very important. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So the Coalition of Student Employee Unions were a nonprofit organization that essentially was formed to sort of facilitate communication and, you know, build on the student employee movement and bring together sort of collective action and knowledge and, you know, different types of networking between all the different sort of student employee unions or maybe student employees who wanted to unionize. So we're kind of a, I mean, the coalition is a good word for it. We're kind of a hodgepodge of a bunch of different folks who got together to really try to, you know, provide a base of support and a hub for communication for student employee unions. Now, the coordinating committee is actually a relatively new thing. We put it together a couple of years ago because we wanted to sort of have a more sort of steady base of a group of people who could provide leadership and work on some of the more mundane day-to-day -day tasks, like putting together a budget, answering emails, that type of thing. So I joined the coordinating committee last year, and it's been really fun. It's a group of about 13 of us, and we're a trilingual organization. So we kind of get together once a week, and we work on sort of longer-term planning things and outreach. We plan things like our annual Congress. And then one of the big projects that we're working on right now is the ReFoundation. So you mentioned that we changed our name. So we're recently sort of expanding from a focus on graduate employees to all student employees. And as part of that, we are incorporating formally as a legal nonprofit in Canada. So we're working through sort of the, the paperwork that goes with that and putting together a budget. So it's a lot of fun. How did you come to be involved with graduate student organizing to begin with? Well, I don't actually have a great answer other than I started my PhD and I was at a new university. And I mean, anybody who's done a PhD will tell you you're often a little lost in those first two years. And I was really attracted by this community of folks on campus who are these, you know, the people who seem to have the best politics, be the most radical, be advocating for change, and sort of be doing the stuff that I wanted to in my, you know, naive, want to change the world type of way. So I ended up getting involved with them. And after I sort of learned more about the process and was able to connect my research to what these labor activists were doing, mm -hmm. I just became more and more involved and it became more central to sort of me and my academic journey and my life. And then as the CSU, all sort of affiliate unions get voting delegates. So I participated as sort of a voting delegate and I did that for two years and then ultimately I just joined the committee. So sort of started with my academics at my university and sort of like, you know, being mad at my boss and then ultimately ended up at the CSU. And Joe, what about you? Was your journey the same or similar or totally radically well, different? Yeah, you know, in some ways it's similar to that and that I just kind of landed in it. So my research had been on social movements up until the time that I joined and became more active in the union at, um, at the university. But I had learned in 2018 just about our union's attempt to negotiate or renegotiate a contract and, and how that process had gone for, I think, more than a year at that point. Then I, I met uh, a few people from the union who were actively trying to gauge interest in a strike and trying to energize other graduate employees to strike that it was there. I, I became more aware of what the union was doing um, and what they were trying to to negotiate. And so when the union decided to strike, I considered it an obligation as a graduate student, as a graduate employee, and as a, and a researcher of social movements that I couldn't just sit in the sidelines. So I participated in the strike. And after working through that all the way to a resolution, I 
thought, you know, the union at this point has done a lot for me and I've seen it in the past, you know, two or three weeks that I want to get more involved and they needed someone to fulfill the role of the grievance officer. And I said, well, I can do that. So the rest is history. When I was a kid, I grew up in the California Bay Area. And for most of my childhood, we never ate grapes. We never had tomatoes. And trying to remember what else we we never ate. And it wasn't because we were trying to be bad vegetarians. It was because of the farm workers movement and Cesar Chavez and what was going on in the California Central Valley. This was in the Bay Area where I was living. So you researched this, this labor organizing and that particular social movement. What do academic graduate student labor organizers learn from activists like Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta and the other larger, larger, they're not larger necessarily, but the bigger movements out in the world? (laughs) Yeah. um, You know, I think for me is it was hard for me at the time to connect my experience with the farm workers in particular and what I knew um, they had a, they had fought for in the 60s because I did feel a sense of privilege being at the university. But I think that what was helpful for me was recognizing a kind of common ground in precarity. And that precarity is something that a lot of us can relate to. And as a graduate student, I was married and I had two kids. And so I really did feel every semester a new sense of anxiety of, you know, how are we going to make ends meet in order to be able to do this thing called a grad school. And so I think that looking toward the past at these movements that have been or seen some kind of success, we can see how to negotiate that precarity and how in a lot of ways that precarity exists and can be responded to effectively. And so as I was part of the the striking effort and became more active in the union, I felt like I was finally able to have some kind of response to the precarity that I was experiencing and be able to see not just changes to my own conditions, but changes and resolution for other students who were in, in, in some ways, a worse position than I was. Is that same precarity present in like Canadian labor movement issues? I, I know, Ali, you talk about gender and, and sex and class and teaching support staff and, and all of that in your research. And I didn't and have never lived in Canada. In fact, I don't even know that I've ever been to Canada. So I'm curious about what the Canadian labor movement and what activists for graduate students learn from Canadian labor history. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, I have a lot of like great American friends and talk to a lot of folks in the States. And it's, I think Canada, we do have this sort of like rosy image sometime where everybody's like, everything's fine. Everybody's great. And, you know, like we definitely have gotten some things right, but we absolutely have a very strong contingent of precarious workers. And that absolutely extends to agricultural and farm workers. And even more so, my personal academic research focuses on domestic workers. So Filipina nannies, for example, who come over on what's called the Temporary Foreign Worker Visa Program, which is a really sort of horrible and quite exploitative and racist visa format. So yes, Canada absolutely has many of the things that I'm sure Jose would recognize. But I think like, it's been really interesting for me. So my home union is called the Teaching Support Staff Union, which is a very small, very unique union. And I've been 
I just unbelievably fortunate to learn from the experience of being in this union because it was formed in 1978 directly as a result of what the women at the time saw as the failures of the labor movement. Mm. So it was formed by a group of support staff. So they were like administrative, clerical support, library support, women who were not allowed to unionize or join the union of the male trade unionists at the time. So these women got together in Vancouver and formed their own union, essentially to reject all of the things that they saw that were keeping them as precarious, low-paid female workers. And it allowed them to sort of actively think about what are the things that are not working in the labor movement and in unions, and what are the things that we would want? And what's come out of that is my union, the Teaching Support Staff Union. So 40 years later, we still have a lot of the guiding principles that they gave us. So that is, we're non-hierarchical, we don't have a president, we don't have a hierarchical structure. We are directly democratic, members vote on everything all the time, it's kind of a nightmare. And we're also explicitly feminist. So a lot of the things that we have bargained for and negotiated for since the beginning have been in direct conflict to what other folks have maybe said like, oh, we can trade away maternity for a bargaining chip to get better wages or something. And a lot of that has been in direct conflict. So all to say that it's been a really interesting foundation to sort of give me the education in understanding the labor movement from sort of two perspectives, which is sort of the big, you know, behemoth of sort of like traditional male trade unionists that would have come up during the like 19th and early 20th century. And then the people who didn't necessarily get along with that or weren't included in that. So I think some of the big lessons that I've taken away from that and I sort of bring to my organizing at a broader scale, like at the CSEU, is sort of understanding the failures and missteps of the labor movement and making sure that we're not sweeping those under the rug. And in Canada, I think probably like in the States, a big part of that means acknowledging the ways in which the labor movement has been sort of actively complicit in the ongoing racist and colonial history of Canada as a state, Mm. and how specific workers, often the most precarious, are excluded from a lot of the benefits that the labor movement has been able to win. And I think that is a very complicated history, but it's one that sort of reminds me that moving forward, it needs to be something that we take into account. Mm -hmm. That if you're not looking to raise the floor for everyone, it's not really a union that I want to be in. And I'm not here to make my job better. And I think being in a smaller, sort of more radical union and coming from the position of never having had job security myself and not representing sort of what might be traditionally known as a trade union worker has been a really excellent learning experience. And it's, you know, we're just trying to build on those lessons. Now we don't always get right, but we try. Well, so I hear you saying that precarity is one of the biggest issues facing graduate students, and Joe suggested the same as well. What are some of the other important issues? I get the the historical exclusion of Indigenous peoples and what have you in Canada, but on the ground, actually, and I'm not saying that that's not an important issue, but what are some of the other really important pressing issues that are facing graduate student employees? I mean, precarity, absolutely. Like, if we haven't already talked about it, it's, it's definitely, like, right up there as, like, number one. But some of the other things that I noted down are, and I think what a better time to talk about it, but healthcare. Healthcare is a huge, huge issue for our members and for most of the people that we talk to, whether it's in Canada or in the States. Access to good, reliable healthcare, whether it's through the state or your job, it's a huge issue. Another big one for us that we've been struggling with recently is health and safety. So that kind of relates to obviously healthcare with the pandemic, but just in general, there's a lot of rejection of health and safety as issues for our workers. Cause you know, if you're like a 
low-paid graduate student worker working at a lab all night, there might not be a lot of health and safety support. And if you come forward, often a lot more than your job is on the line. It can be your entire life if you're a student. And then the other thing for us that I would mention is affordability, especially in terms of housing. So that's a huge struggle for our members. Yeah, I mean, I would echo those. Each of those, I think, were uh, prominent issues during the strike in 2018. And, and even now that, I mean, I'm gone now, but the university is in the process of renegotiating wages with the union. And so, you know, I, th- I think that the healthcare issue is probably one of the more pressing for obvious reasons. But even throughout my time at the university, healthcare was always an issue in that the premiums were constantly on the rise and there didn't ever seem to be any kind of cap. And so a student who goes to, let's say, do a doctoral program and takes them, best case scenario, four years to finish, I mean, they're going to see an exponential increase or can expect to see an exponential increase in healthcare costs just to have some kind of healthcare coverage. And I think the other issue that became more prominent towards the end of my time there at the university was some kind of childcare. So there were a lot of students that had to work out childcare on their own without really any kind of support from the university. And the university might supply contacts or they might supply local schools that might give some kind of childcare support, but my partner stayed home and took care of our two children, and and we had moved away from our hometown and from family, and and so we didn't have really any other options, and that would have been affordable, especially on a graduate student salary. So those two things, I think, were, were the ones that became more and more prominent the longer I was at the university. It sounds to me, too, like all of this contributes to this notion that we've talked about called precarity, right, (laughs) which could be said to encapsulate a lot of this. You know, I think of when I think of precarity and tell me if I'm wrong, a coupling of both insecurity and just not getting paid enough. I mean, the low levels of graduate student stipends. I guess I'm curious as to your thoughts about if or how the COVID-19 pandemic maximizes or exacerbates feelings of precarity. Because prior to the pandemic, we were seeing a real burst of graduate student organizing and, you know, some wildcat strikes in California and some strikes in in Urbana-Champaign. But, you know, I'm wondering what the consequence of this pandemic is going to be on graduate student organizing and on that all-important question of precarity. I think one of the things that stands out to me is, you know, whenever we talk to graduate students and they were in some kind of research role or teaching role, very rarely did I hear graduate employees complaining about students or complaining about the research they were doing. I mean, they enjoy the work that they're doing. And one of the things that the pandemic, I think, that's impact on precarity, I think it takes away some of the joy that comes with doing the work you like to do and really do find a fulfillment in doing because now you have an added layer of worry and anxiety that comes from having to live in these new conditions. And so I think that really heightens the anxiety that comes just from having to figure out 
how are we going to eat this week? How do we pay rent this month? Or, you know, let's say I do get sick. How am I going to have access to a doctor, take care of groceries, make sure my family doesn't get sick? I mean, you know, all of these things Mm -hmm. that come along with living in a pandemic. But then you, when you don't now have the opportunity to engage in the work that you like to do, well, now, I mean, it really does start to feel like an isolating experience. And without adequate support from even just a union, it can really feel like you're out on an island by yourself and having to figure it all out on your own without Mm -hmm. any kind of recourse for a sense of release or relief. We've been pretty fortunate in Canada, right? We've had a pretty good handle on the pandemic and things have not sort of advanced to the number of cases and deaths that you're seeing in the States, but we are still seeing huge impacts. And unfortunately, it's been really, really difficult, I would say, as an organizer and as a teacher and as a student myself. I'm really fortunate to be totally fine, but I teach a lot of undergraduates who aren't. And one of the things that I wanted to highlight, which I think is a huge, huge issue, not only in Canada, but I think in the States as well, and we've been organizing, is the status of international students and international student employees during the pandemic. So that has been one of the major points of organizing that I've been working on and we've been working on. We've been working closely actually with a group called Migrant Students United, who are really great. But one of the big issues that I feel like a lot of people haven't necessarily known about, because it's kind of complicated, which is that A lot of the time, because of visa status, international students who were in Canada, say, for their degree, are bound by the conditions of their visa that they can only work on campus. But of course, when campus shut, you can't work on campus anymore. But you might have to pay two, three, four, five times the tuition of a student like me who's domestic. So these international students are all of a sudden trapped in this relationship where they can't leave because the borders are shut. They can't work because it's illegal. They have to pay the exorbitant amounts of tuition because if they don't pay, then their visa doesn't work and then they are illegally in the country. So they're really caught between a rock and a hard place. And unfortunately, we've asked and demanded time and time again that the federal government, the provincial government and our universities respond to these people who are all of a sudden completely trapped and really extra, extra in need of support. And these are often the students who are the backbone of the universities. Mm -hmm. They are providing the tuition that allows domestic students like me to get a degree. So it's really, you know, just a horrible juxtaposition that the students who are contributing the most and who have often gone such a long way to study and be here and have maybe not any family close, those are the ones that are now all of a sudden being threatened the most. And it's little things like this that sometimes you don't think about because you'll get a politician who's like, no, international students are all wealthy and their rich parents pay for them. And it's like, no, that is not true. That is not even true. Not even close. So absolutely, like COVID has been, I think, less dramatic in terms of cases, but we are still seeing some huge impacts on people who are the most precarious. And it's really, really sad and disappointing and enraging, honestly, to see the explicit lack of support from universities and from governments when we are telling them these people need our help. These are our comrades. These are our colleagues. They contribute taxes. They pay more tuition than anyone else. We need to be behind them. We need Mm -hmm. to help them. We had a situation, as I'm sure you're aware, in the States where all of a sudden the Homeland Security Department tells all of our international students that they're going to have to go home if their coursework is done online. 
and they pulled back from that. But you're right to uphold the precarity, the special precarity, I guess, of international students. I'm wondering, do they have the same sort of history or interaction or understanding, I suppose, of labor organizing? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know. I obviously can't speak for everyone, but in my and this actually is a lesson that I would say doesn't necessarily even apply to international students, but applies to a lot of people just from like elsewhere, which is that there isn't necessarily the same level of understanding or like good feelings about the labor movement. Right. Like a lot of the times I will meet people who are like, oh, I have been very clearly told to stay away from unions. Like they are extremely dangerous. They're very problematic. But I know that like my colleague and organizer, Jade Ho, is from Taiwan, for example. Mm -hmm. And she, when she heard about the union, she was terrified. She was like, oh my God, this is going to be terrible. I need to get away from this. This is super dangerous. This is what I've been warned against my entire life. But then when we were going through a strike and everything became, you know, the communication was a lot more explicit. There was a lot of activism. She came to a point where she was like, wait, this is actually all the things that I want. So I can't speak for all international students, but I know that as like a Canadian labor unionist, it's really important for me to remember that not everyone comes from the same level of like awareness or just general amorphous positive feelings that I do. Right. It's interesting that you talk about having to overcome this sort of bias against the labor movement and labor unions. I'm old enough to remember the push and pull of how labor unions and labor organizing has been seen in contemporary American history. And Joe, did you encounter any of that resistance to, to labor organizing at Illinois? I, uh, you know, I hope not from the faculty, but perhaps from, from others in the community. Um, no, I, I didn't experience that, but I do think that there is a, it does at times or did at times to me feel like the union was kind of a black box uh, that you didn't really know what went on, went on at these, at, you know, at their meetings and, or at their rallies and things like that. And, and that's just, I mean, because you're so engrossed in the work that it, it does take energy and effort to try to extricate yourself from it in order to think about what we normally just take for granted, which is working conditions. And I mean, we're, we get so used to having to manage and having to negotiate circumstances and the pressures that we feel that unless you take some time to pull away from it. And I mean, honestly, for me, when our union was preparing to strike, actually meeting people who were involved and listening to what their approach was to labor organization and the importance of solidarity that even though I knew about it in this kind of theoretical sense from my own research, it was at that moment when I felt like I, I truly did understand this on a more personal level and, and was willing to act on it. So put on your crystal ball hats and tell me what the future holds. I mean, where are we going with graduate labor organizing on this Labor Day season? What does it look like? And what are the issues that graduate employees are going to have to tackle in the next two, five, ten years? Yeah, I think like for, for me and for the CSEU, our organization trying to like bring people together, like one of the big things that we're seeing, and I am absolutely not willing to commit to saying this will happen, but it's definitely in the air, is sort of a bit of tension between a lot of smaller 
student employee unions and their bigger parent unions. Mm. Because I think a lot of graduate students and students in general, honestly, who are also workers are starting to be a little bit frustrated of not having their precarity, but also their sort of unique positions like understood in the broader context of both the university and often their unions. Mm. And there's a lot of, you know, students who want to be more radical, who want to ask for more, who want to be ask for better respect and sort of gain some traction with some new ideas that aren't necessarily being taken up in sort of the bigger lumbering machines that are the giant parent unions. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I expect we might see is a lot more of the sort of like more nimble, a little more flexible, a little more radical, willing to push the envelope a little bit. Mm -hmm. Because I think there is a lot of a lot of that in the air right now. There's a lot of people who are saying, we're done, enough, stop stopping us with bureaucracy, stop stopping us because we didn't say exactly the right words at exactly the right time. What we want is change and we're not gonna sort of let people get in our way anymore. So I don't know what that's gonna look like, but we are hearing a few rumblings. So that will be very interesting to see how that shakes out. Interesting indeed. What do you think, Joe? Where are we going? You know, I think there's an, a growing awareness that the status quo isn't the way life has to be. And I, I'm i very encouraged by that. And in some ways, that just was part of my own experience is realizing the status quo wasn't really that great. <laughs> and so the pandemic, I think, has really brought that to light and that universities can't operate on the same models that they've been operating under. And there is, I think, a growing sense in those of us that are part of it, that whether faculty, grad students, undergraduates, it's just trying to put the way we used to do things into this new context is really disenfranchising a lot of people and is bringing to light some of the weaknesses in the system already. And so I'm encouraged by that and think that as we kind of continue to struggle through the pandemic and, and even thinking about what life will be like on the other side, I don't think that people will come out of this thinking that oh, we'll just go back to normal life as usual. And so I think that we will see more and more of an awareness of things can be better or things you know should change in order to ensure that we do live in a more equitable post-pandemic life because you know the pandemic I think has revealed just how much that wasn't true. Interesting. I as you spoke about that, I'm curious about a, an article I read recently in the Chronicle of Higher Education, which suggests that all of a sudden now, we're seeing these cross-group kind of linkages happening, where the faculty, the tenured faculty, and the support staff and the graduate students are all finding a lot of solidarity, particularly in opposition to administrations of colleges and universities. And Perhaps there is is some lesson. One of the things we always do on this podcast is ask our guests how communication actually matters to what it is uh, we're talking about, in this case, graduate labor organizing. And beyond that sort of cross-group discussion, are there any other aspects of what you all know and have studied about communication that you think particularly matters to graduate labor organizing or aspects about communication that future graduate student labor organizers should pay particular attention to? 
Yeah, I mean, I can start. I think, I mean, I think it's, I'm, I'm super biased, obviously. Right. I am doing we all a PhD are. in communication. But <laughs> right. yes, but I have to say that even beyond my bias, I think it's, it's pretty fundamental, honestly, because it kind of goes back to what we were just talking about, which is, in my experience, there's a lot of people who don't necessarily have just an inherent appreciation or understanding of what labor unions can do for them or why they're important or why we need to fight for them. So if you're not communicating that to your members and sort of, especially when you're talking about graduate students or students in general who are often maybe coming from not a great education where they know about labor movements and they might be in and out in two to five years, it's extra important, I think, that we like really make it clear like how unions contribute to your life and why it's important for you now, but also in the rest of your life. And you know, that can be really hard because I think like Jose said it really well when he's like, sometimes unions can be a black box. Like if you're bargaining behind a closed door, literally no one knows what's going on. If you asked me four years ago to describe a bargaining session, I absolutely could never tell you what that looks like. But having things like open bargaining or having things where you're very, you know, really just asking your members to tell them very plainly, what do you want? What do you not like about what we're doing? And explaining why unions are important and explaining how to form your own union Mm -hmm. if you want to. Basic stuff like that sometimes doesn't really get passed on. And I think that sometimes we, we get so wrapped up in it, you know, those of us who've been doing this for years that we forget the basics. So I really think that sort of like getting down to that foundational level and imagining yourself as an 18, 19, 20, 21 year old who kind of knows nothing. Those are the things that we really want to be getting and, you know, getting them in early so they can help us, you know, rebuild the labor movement that will inevitably topple capitalism. Right, right. Well, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, Ali's, I think, really is bringing up just for me as a rhetorical scholar, you know, I think about visibility and how rhetoric is an art of making of making things visible. And so I have, I think in in my own union, as I was working through as a grievance officer, I mean, for me, you know, part of my job was showing the university that there was some kind of a breach. And so thinking about how to make that visible to them was something that I really had to work on and think about the best way of doing that. And so in terms of communication sort of more broadly in label organizing, I think that there is a, a need to constantly think about how do we make you know the work that we're doing visible? How do we make the effects of our organizing visible? And who are the stakeholders that need to see that? Because I think when we were going through the strike in 2018, one of the audiences that I didn't think was actually an audience, but turned out to be a really important one was the undergrads and really making it visible to them that what we were doing and why we were doing this and really finding that, you know, undergrads responded well when they knew what what it was we were striking for. And so this notion of visibility, I think, is is something that is really important and that communication itself is vital to Well, hopefully this small little podcast episode has made graduate student labor organizing a little bit more visible. So Joe and Allie, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a very enlightening and very interesting conversation, and I really appreciate you coming on Communication Matters. Thank you very much. This was great. Yeah, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. And listeners, thanks for joining us in this discussion. And we at NCA wish everyone a happy, happy Labor Day.
listeners, make sure to tune in for our next episode on September 17th, featuring current and former NCA journal editors. Deanna Danels, Professor of Communication and Associate Dean of Academic Affairs at the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at North Carolina State. Corey Floyd, who is a professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Arizona. Shiv Ganesh, professor in the Department of Communication Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. And Ronald Jackson II, professor of communication at the University of Cincinnati and a past NCA president, join me to talk about their experiences as being editors of NCA journals. They offer their thoughts on the rewards and challenges that aspiring editors can expect. Be sure to engage with us on social media by liking us on Facebook, following NCA on Twitter and Instagram, and watching us on YouTube. And before you go, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to listen in as we discuss emerging scholarship, established theory, and new applications, all exploring just how much communication matters in our classrooms, in our communities, and in our world. See you next time. Communication Matters is hosted by NCA Executive Director Trevor Perry Giles and is recorded in our national office in downtown Washington, D.C. The podcast is recorded and produced by Assistant Director for Digital Strategies, Chelsea Bowes, with writing support from Director of External Affairs and Publications, Wendy Fernando, and Content Development Specialist, Grace Hebert. Thank you for listening.